Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome tonight to Club Book with Kavai Strong Washburn. I'm Kaylin Creason. I'm a librarian at the Woodbury branch of Washington County Libraries. And I'm so excited to do this Club Book event tonight. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me to take a moment to tell you a bit about the unique series that is bringing him to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Washington County Library is the co-organizer of tonight's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event, chart-topping novelist Kavai Strong Washburn lives in Minnesota, but hails proudly from the big island of Hawaii. His upbringing inspires and infuses his first fiction foray, Sharks in the Time of Saviors. It centers on the family of Noah Flores, a native son blessed by the island's ancient gods with unique abilities. As mysterious as they are impressive, Noah's powers cause friction within his family, even as this gift allows them to consider a future beyond their current hard scrabble lives. Publishers Weekly lauds, Washburn's standout debut provides a vivid portrait of Hawaiian identity, mythology, and diaspora. It's a unique and spirited depiction of the 50th state and its children. Sources as varied as the New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and former President Barack Obama have singled out Sharks in the Time of Saviors as one of the best reads of 2020, which I'll add also one of the best reads of 2021. <laughs> but that's me. Okay. Washburn's Gripping Family Saga also won the prestigious Penn Hemingway Award and a 2021 Minnesota Book Award. After a short talk by our guest and some a reading, I believe, from Sharks in the Time of Saviors. We'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, totally fine. You can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. And with that, welcome Kavai. Hi, thanks so much. It's a, that was a very nice intro. Thank you to the Washington County Libraries and to the Mesla, Melsa. I'm probably getting Melsa, it wrong. Either. Melsa, yeah, there we go. There was also a third, I didn't see, there was a third organization that helped co-sponsor the, yeah. it's like a the water and clean, what was it? Oh yeah, the Minnesota Cultural Arts and Heritage Fund. Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So, you know, thank you to all those organizations for putting together all of the club book events and for inviting me to this event in particular. I, I really appreciate it. I, I guess I'll, I'll go through a couple of things really quickly. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell everybody, I'll talk just a little bit about myself and about the book and then I'll do a reading and we can open it up. But before I wanted to, before any of that, I thought it's worth talking just a little bit about how much libraries mean to me. Uh, both growing up, but also some really interesting stories I have, at least I think they're interesting, from the Hennepin County library system. So to, just to start, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in a small town, Honoka'a, on the northeast part of the Big Island of Hawaii, 
And the Big Island is also named Hawaii. Both the state and the island are the same. So everybody calls it the Big Island. It's the biggest island in the chain. So I grew up in a small town on the northeast coast, uh, Honoka'a. And it's really far. There's not a lot of bookstores making nearby. It's really far from the closest bookstore. And there's a really small public library there in Honoka'a. And so all of the reading I did when I was a kid was at that library. I checked out all sorts of books, probably a lot of books that I shouldn't have checked out at my age, like Stephen King and like Michael Crichton. And there were books that had a lot of content at the time that probably was questionable for like a sixth grader to read, but it's okay. I came out the other side. I'm not like warped or anything like that. But anyway, so the thing that was really lovely is I went back there after years, decades later, I went back to the public library. We were home with my kids and the public the one of the librarians that worked at the, the library recognized me. And she said, didn't you used to come here when you were a kid? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I came here all the time. It was amazing. She was still working there. She remembered me. Uh, so libraries for me were, that was the only way that I had access to books as a child because of the, the place that we lived and how far it was from any, like a bookstore or anything like that. Anyway, so I've always had a deep appreciation for libraries. When I was researching my second novel, uh, which I'm working on now, I was doing a lot of work actually looking at ancient Hawaii. And there are some books that I needed for research that I couldn't get easily. And then I was just on a whim. I was like, you know what? I wonder if they have any of these in the local library system. And I couldn't believe the number of ancient, the books books about like ancient Hawaiian anthropology and history that are available in the Hennepin County library system. I was shocked. Books that I don't think I could have easily found even in Hawaii potentially were available in the Hennepin, Hennepin County Library. I couldn't believe it. Uh, it's fantastic. So, you know, libraries are such an amazing part of our society. I think they're probably the best part of our society because it's the one place you can go where there's absolutely no room for any sort of discrimination. It's the most, it's the most equitable institution among all the institutions in our society. And when I was working on writing Sharks in the Time of Saviors, I wrote sections of it in public libraries in multiple states, in Washington, DC, in California. And I remember going in there and there were people that were clearly in a wide variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, bus drivers on their breaks, people that were houseless that were there as a reprieve and a way to find the services they needed to get jobs and things like that, children, people like me, people studying for tests, you know, all sorts of amazing things happen in libraries. It's such, they're such wonderful institutions, really important part of, of just, just society at large. So thank you to libraries. So I'll talk really briefly about myself. Um, I'm, I'm 42 years old. We moved to the Twin Cities, uh, I don't know, time's warped. I think it's like two and a half years ago now. Uh, and my wife is from here. People always ask, Kavai, why, why did you end up in Minnesota when you're from Hawaii? So my wife and I met when we were living on the East Coast, working at a nonprofit. Uh, we moved to California to get close to my family. My wife, my, my mother, my stepmother was dying of cancer at the time. So we moved all the way to the West Coast to get as close as we could to them. And then um, climate change basically drove us out of California. We were there during several rounds of really bad fires and droughts. And as a result... Can you hear my daughter? Yeah. Yes. That's it's that time of night. This is our house this time of night. Every every time I have a book event, this is what happens. Anyway. Just uh, so we were, it, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So we were, we were living in California and um, we lived through several rounds of significantly worse wildfires and droughts. And so we started to have a discussion about finding another place to live. My wife's family is here. So we moved to the Twin Cities. We've been here a couple of years. The vast majority of that has been under the pandemic. So I've never gotten to experience like the best parts of the Twin Cities probably. But uh, so that's why we're here. A lot of people ask those questions. So I get those out of the way. Uh, really quickly before I, I dive into a section to read from, I just wanted to give a brief overview of, I, you know, there are a lot of questions people tend to have about why did you write this book? You know, what, it, what does this book mean to you? And things like that. It took me 10 years to write the book. Yeah, and... During that time, I moved through two to three different cities. I was a graduate student, then I was working at a nonprofit. I've worked in a variety of jobs. I got married. My grandparents passed away. My stepmother passed away. We had two children. And the entire time I was just writing this book and it was just happening while all those other parts of my life were happening. And, you know, I don't, it's hard for me to say what initially why I started writing it. I don't know. I, you know, it's kind of why if you ask people, why do they read? It's sort of like, well, why, you know, I read for a variety of reasons. I read to learn new things. I read to experience worlds I couldn't otherwise. I read to, to have the sort of experiences you can only have in a book, which for me are experiences where you're 
you're living in another consciousness in particular. If you, if you read a book and it's one that really dives into like the inner lives of your characters, then you're going to live these characters at some, to some extent. And I feel like I still take some of those characters with me when I leave and I go out in the world and live. The characters that I read in books, particularly the ones that move me the most, those become a part of my life. And so that's why I read and that's why I write. And I think that this novel, I, I wrote initially because I was trying to understand the, the parts about growing up in Hawaii and leaving the islands and coming to the continental United States that were that were difficult and what it was about living and growing up in the islands that led me to have this very specific experience in the United States that feels very different than what it is for most people that live in the continental United States. That has to do with the history of colonialism. It has to do with ideas of race and identity that are much different in the islands than they are in a lot of the continental United States. And so all those things were things that drove me to write the book or things that I was interested in when I was writing the book. So that's how it came about. <laughs> uh, it's about, I think you already kind of mentioned it, right? We got like a, a blue collar family in Hawaii. This is right around the time of the collapse of the sugarcane industry. And they're witness to a miracle when their son is saved from drowning by sharks. And they take that as a sign of favor from ancient Hawaiian gods and the story from there goes on to see what happens in their lives as a result of this supposed miracle. And this isn't, this isn't ruining very much for you, but the, the child that is saved from drowning goes on to have some abilities that are hard for everybody to understand. And those abilities, it looks like he's able to like repair broken bones and to heal people. And he has a strange connection with the natural world. And so they're trying to understand that at the same time as they're trying to struggle through issues of poverty and displacement and all of the children in the family are also put in a position in which they end up in this really friction, the situation of a lot of friction because of this one child having what appear to be these special gifts. So that's what the book is about as a whole. I'll read from one section, um, just to preface it really quickly. This is a section in which it's Nainoa, the child that was saved from drowning, has apparently been able to help people when they have illnesses and things like that. And so people have been visiting his house. This is right after somebody had left that came back and said, well, you were supposed to cure me and you didn't. I'm not better the way that you said I would be. And so he shook up after that event has occurred. And so this is a scene with him and his brother. And it also goes on to show a little bit about his sister's life, how she's experiencing these sorts of moments and who she is as a person as well. So it's a tail end of like this, the, I don't know, it's like the fourth chapter in the book or something. So I'll read for just a little bit and then we can have a discussion and, and go from there. I have a timer running. I'm trying to keep things. I don't think anybody wants to listen to me talk for a long time. <laughs> so, okay, so here we go. I that's why we're all here, but okay. <laughs> I guess. But I, I trust you. I trust you. <laughs> okay, so. But the part that mattered most was what came later. When Dean came home and heard the story, he went into his and Noah's room and closed the door after. And of course I went and listened the cool sludge of the old door paint, the only thing between me and my brothers. I could call up JC then, we could go wreck this guy, Dean offered. What is this, the Hawaiian mafia? Noah said. Just saying, Dean said. No, Noah said, he has Parkinson's. Don't matter if he got like Rolexes, Dean said. He can't come in here. It's a neurological disorder, Noah said. You punk, Dean said. Even when I'm trying for help, you gotta be a dictionary. Sorry, Noah said. They got closer to the door. How I knew is that I could feel their voices buzzing along the ridge of my ear right through the door. But fine, Dean said. I'm supposed to protect you. You're the one, right? His voice like he was tasting something he didn't want in his mouth. Especially not anymore. Now that he was flexing into a hot shit basketball star and suddenly he could hear people talk about him too. Not just Noah. But there in that room, he said it. You're the one. And it was like all of a sudden that made it true. Like we all saw what was happening to Noah, that there was something special. If it wasn't really the gods of Hawaii doing something heavy, maybe it was a new science, some sort of, I don't know, evolution. Dean and Noah didn't say anything else because Dean opened the door. Only I didn't realize until the snappy click of the doorknob. It jumped back just in time not to dump their feet. Dean snorted. How's this? She was listening at the door. Cowie, was all Noah said, like he was a million years tired. I couldn't hear anything, I said. Nothing worth hearing, Dean said. He reached out to muss my hair, pushed too hard when he did it. 
My brothers split in the hall without another word. Noah with his uke in hand, breaking for the garage. Dean to the front room, probably television, whatever game was on, right? And me still there in the hall, feeling like in my own house, there was nowhere to go. Every day for the next week, I went back to the rec center, listening for the chance in the opening of practice. Usually it was on the basketball court instead of the cafeteria, but either way I could find it. Voices called. I'd watch from outside the door. When it was done, the girls squatting back on their shoes and then cracking into their clicks. The kumus opening their gym bags and slipping their ipus and then rolling and tucking their mats, the one they'd used for pounding and sitting, then putting back on their shoes too. All of them out the doors and the shined gym floor and the chants and the ipu stopped echoing in the rafters. All I could hear was the low buzz of the exit signs. Whatever was there in that air, I can say it fed me. I'd go there and listen and even dance just a little myself. And when it was over and I went home, I'd push harder, fly through the pages of my textbooks. Extra credit science, I'd collect tadpoles from the culvert near our house. Or extra credit math, right? I'd calculate dice throws or card games. People would find me after class and ask for help on their homework or always want me to be my, their partner in labs and quiz bowl. And this was Kahena I was doing this at. Still, something went wrong with Noah after that Parkinson's guy showed up. He, would, he suddenly stopped talking, taking people in. Mom and dad would have to go to the door when it, when it knocked and apologize. Sorry, he's not gonna come out today, sick or something, I think. All refunds and after it went on for a few weeks, no extra cash. Mom and dad at the table with their envelope getting empty, doing long division and subtraction, always subtraction. Noah wouldn't say what exactly, just that he couldn't. Let him alone, mom and dad would warn if they saw me sneaking around by the garage door. On the other side, he'd be playing the uke, songs all sad and tricky, sometimes with so many notes and chords tumbling along at the same time, it was like he had an extra hand. Later, they'd get him out of the garage and the three of them would smash together on the couch. Faces flashed with white and blue from the television. While me and Dean were the ones doing Noah's chores, okay? Sweeping the floor or washing the dishes or cleaning the bathroom? Don't do nothing, Dean would say, suds to his wrist while he tried to find the last forks. Only once I did. Dean in his after basketball shower, mom and dad getting ready for bed. Noah was in the garage, but he wasn't playing. He hadn't been for a while. When I went through the door, he was at the far corner by dad's bench where dad kept his hunting and fishing stuff, all his car tools and everything. Noah was hunched on a fold-out chair, pants pulled down to his knees. He was facing away from me. I walked over all cockroach quiet. The air smelled like old wood and Noah was there taking these weird deep breaths. He was holding something in one of his hands. Whatever it was, he had it low in his hands, so I kept stepping closer to see. I got maybe five feet away when I kicked the bottle cap. It went skittering and pinging into some dark corner and Noah jumped. Hey, he started trying to cover things with his hands, but I made it in time. He couldn't hide what he was holding. There was a hunting knife in his right hand, long and thick and teethy. On his left thigh, up high where his skin was way lighter, there was a fresh cut. Blood was weeping out. We started talking all at once. I wanted to know what he was doing and he just wanted me to go away, but I was tired of going. I kept asking, was he hurt? And should I go get mom or dad? No, he said, no, 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 it's not an accident. I know it's not an accident. I said, you see anyone else in here holding a knife? He clunked the knife down on the table like it said something, like that meant this was over. The cut was weeping blood. Noah was just staring. Fix it, I said. I can't, he said. You mean right now, I asked, or like ever? We watched it bleed. He was staring so hard, I thought his face would pop. Noah? It's never been like New Year's, he said. It made everything make sense, how he would only see people with his door closed all alone, how the Parkinson's man came back. Noah, I said, all those people. I still did something, he said. I could feel it most times, almost like I was in their bodies. But there are all these things that keep coming, pictures, commands, I don't know. And he slapped his palm against his head, hard once, then again, then again with his eyes clamped closed, and tears ran from the edges of his lids. I put my hand on his back, but he jerked away like he'd been bitten. Get away, he said. I guess I wasn't surprised. 
So I did what he said. I went back to the gym the next day after school. More heat than before. No clouds, making the afternoon almost like a squinty headache. The spitting pop of bus brakes, voices hollering into and out of the gym, even the bright crack of people playing pool in the front rec room. I watched the halal from outside the door. We had an arrangement, okay, because I never asked my mom and dad about paying to join. I knew the answer. So the kumu said I could still come if I only watched from outside, right? When kumu wailoa, the one with her tissue paper worn tank tops, vana of armpit hair poking out, chicken pox forehead and smile like a dolphin. When she said I could learn whatever I saw, I told myself I'd learn everything. The kumu started the music for the warm-up. Easy, soft slaps of the ipu. I did the warm-up, same as the girls inside. Ami, uvehe, kaholo, hela, the step and swing, arms like lightning bolts sometimes and then like water. Rock and circle of my hips, my back and all those bones, stiff as a spear. It made me feel right, like a back in the day Hawaiian woman, the beat of their hula, their scarred, their scarred, flexy, almost black skin, I felt it. Closed lips with mana and their naked chichis out in the open, no holly dresses. Fists that wove lauhala mats and pulled kala from the fields. So maybe mom and dad and the gods didn't care about me the way they did about Noah. That didn't mean I couldn't be something. I was still here. There we go. That's it. Probably heard my alarm go off. <laughs> the I liked it. That was my alarm. Timing yourself. Timing. Yeah. <laughs> you. I mean, the timing was like. It was like this. I just missed. I know. <laughs> I slowed down too much. It's hard. It's hard to know how to. I can never gauge how long it takes. Reading something out loud takes forever compared to reading it, like writing it or reading it on the page. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. Like you don't want to read too fast, too slow. Yeah. No, that was great. My, that's my <laughs> first you. time hearing that passage since finishing the book. And for some reason, like when she's watching the hula, my heart starts pounding like, ah, oh, it's just so, so wonderful. Well, that's good. Oh, that's that good. was one that of the things. Things. It's a weird echo. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, something echo. Uh, yeah, that was one of the things when I was writing the book. One of the, one of the goals I had, particularly mm -hmm. with Cowie was... I wanted to present, I wanted to present the culture of the islands in a way that that pushed back against what I see as the really typical images and stereotypes about the islands that exist. And one of those that's a very flawed and painful stereotype is the way hula is portrayed in popular culture in the United States. So it's like the this is the it's the living history and the living voice of an entire people, an entire civilization that was once a sovereign kingdom, right? The United States stole the land from the people, deposed the queen illegally, destroyed the monarchy and tried to annihilate the people of the islands. And along with that, one of the things that was taken or was attempted to be taken was hula, right? And now when people think of it, they think of corny luau's and I go to a hotel and I get like a, a fruity cocktail and I watch people dance for me. Mm -hmm. And that's not what hula is. It is it is like the living history of the people. When I dance hula or when I see it performed, especially in the Merry Monarch Festival, which is a festival that's designed to celebrate the native Hawaiian culture mm -hmm. and tradition around hula. It's a performance competition, but it's also this incredible celebration of it. When I, when I watch that live or when I dance hula myself among practitioners, I can feel that. I can really feel the entire history. I can feel the weight of the entire culture there, like present, you know? And so one of the things that I wanted to write in this book, and that is, that's what happens with Cowie's section, is I wanted to portray hula the way that it has felt to me, both as an observer and as a practitioner, uh, to try and it, to whatever small extent possible, undo or push back against that very unfortunate stereotype that exists about it, so. Yeah, I think you do that with how you write it. And then with Cowie, she's such a strong and physical woman that it's seen for, I mean, it's seen for how powerful it is through her in a way too. And I know you've talked in other interviews about writing Cowie and how you very intentionally wanted to write a strong Hawaiian woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really important for me. You know, again, it was one of those things where when I was writing this book, I don't know I didn't have any idea what was going to happen. I didn't know if it was ever going to get published or if it was going to get published, mm -hmm. where it would go, if it would just be at a small publisher, if it would just get published, you know, someplace where it would only end up in Hawaii or wherever. 
but you know, when I was writing it, I really just was writing it for me. Like I was writing the book, kind of book that I would want to read. And one of the things that I'm always looking for and that I always appreciate in, in good books and good stories is when, particularly when female characters are presented in ways that they buck those stereotypes again. Like any opportunity I had to break a stereotype in this book, I did it. Um, and so I love the complexity of Cowie and I love the ways in which she's, she, so she, I don't know, she's like, she's like salty and she has all these hard edges, but she's also asked to do things later on in the book that are, they're like diametrically opposed to all those aspects of her. And she has to learn how to be somebody who's also nurturing and loving. And that fits in with her family in a way that she didn't ever imagine she would. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was both an attempt to express a type of feminine power that I think is important to recognize, but to also honor and value the more typical like maternal parts of what we, what we think of as like classical feminine ideas and to both celebrate those, right? Cause I don't really think it's a rejection necessarily of, mm -hmm. of the things we typically associate with femininity. I think those things are beautiful and amazing and are things that, that men and people that are may, might not necessarily identify as female, those things should still be valued, right? It's just, it's, it's putting those things on equal playing, right? Like being a parent and, and loving your children and raising your children and learning how to build like functional, deep relationships with other people, those are all like powerful and beautiful and amazing things. And they're just things men need to get better at. <laughs> and they, they, need, they need to value more, right? As opposed to all of us suddenly saying like, oh, like staying at home is, that's weakness, right? If you're like, a, if you're a stay-at-home mom, there's something that you're, you're like giving into the patriarchy. So no, the problem is that like, we need to value those things equally and find a place where both, you know, anybody of any gender orientation learns to express both those sides of themselves. And so the, the challenge is just as much on men or people that don't identify as female to embrace the maternal side and the things that we classically value as feminine at the same time as those other things. And so that's the, that tension I think is kind of, that's a major part of Cowie's story, right? Dealing with those two things at the same time. Oh, I mean, I think so from her, you know, loving the hula, which at least in, you know, the continental states culture, you've already said, like, it's very mis, it's totally misunderstood here, totally. And then also dancing here just in general is seen as like a very feminine thing. But then you also have her seeking to be an engineer, which is typically such a masculine thing. And so you're right. She really does have this beautiful tension in her character. Rock climb. I mean, she's, yeah, she was absolutely one of my, it's hard to pick a favorite character. I don't know if you can. <laughs> It must be even harder when you've lived in their heads. I, I, Callie was probably my favorite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dean, Dean was very hard to write. And I think this is actually a question somebody had sent in previously. They I were asking right. about the different yeah. characters. But, mm -hmm. you know, for me, that one of the hardest characters to write was Dean, because mm -hmm. Dean was is so different than me as a person. I think I've said it in like previous interviews and things like Dean was the kind of person that would have beat me up in high school, or in fact, yeah. the kind of person that did, did beat me up in high school. But, you know, even just talking about those people that I knew in high school and stuff, they were still, they, they were still people that loved them, that swore by them, that were like, this is somebody that has like showed up for me in my life in various ways, right? Whether they were like a really good, you know, boyfriend or husband to somebody, or they were a really good brother, or they were a really good son, you know, there were, there was some place in their life where they did things for other people that, that worked, that, that were good parts of them. And then there were these other parts of them that were really, really difficult and antagonistic to who I was as a person. And so Dean was a character that I really wanted to find a way to render, especially as the book was going on and I was through the, getting into the revision process. And I was really thinking about these bigger themes of, for instance, capitalism mm -hmm. and the way the novel to me came to represent kind of a rejection of the big man theory of history, which is very much, I think, an, an American fixation. And I think it's only reinforced by things like I don't know, superhero movies and the like, where it's always, there's a singular individual, they show up, they have special gifts and they save us all. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way we view, it's the same lens we apply to history more generally. We talk about these major moments in like the history of the United States and the world. And we mm -hmm. typically try to contract them to a story of one individual, like this singular individual showed up and guided us through whatever that was. If we talk about the civil rights movement, then it's going to be Martin Luther King Jr. If we talk about World War II, you know, a lot of people will talk about people like Winston Churchill or whatever. And it's not, that's just not the way it works, right? And so I think that that Dean believes it does. And so Dean came to be a character that very much, represent, very much represented this like total embodiment and embrace of the individual overall. And 
to the extent that he does that as a way to help his family, where he's just like, I'm going to make so much money that we're never going to be poor again. It's like, I hate being poor. I hate being broke. I hate it. I hate the way it makes us feel weak and like dependent. And I just don't like it. Right. And so he takes the terms of the world as they exist, right. Capitalism pushed to its extreme. And he's like, I'm going to win this game. I'm not going to win capitalism, no matter what, no matter what it takes. I'm going to do that for my family. I hate being broke. And so that's, that's like his central, that's, that's, his story becomes one of like playing that out to its extremes, right? And at the same time, he does, he, he probably has the moment of like the biggest, in my opinion, sacrifice. He makes probably the biggest and most painful sacrifice of anybody in the book. And it's like, it is remarkable and incredible what he does in the moment that he does that he has to make this decision. And so and he loves his family, right? And so you get to see that side of him at the same time as you see all these awful parts of him, you know, he's misogynist and homophobic and like, just like a knucklehead in a lot of ways, but you know, those exist alongside these really important parts of him as well. So he was really hard to write. Cause I was writing stuff in there. I was like, people are going to read this and think I'm a creep, right? Like he says awful things like racist things and stuff. And I'm like, as I'm writing and I'm wincing, you know, but I was, I had to render the character realistically, even if it went against all the values that I have. So that was a challenge. That's a really big challenge. That has to be a huge challenge and it speaks to just how well you are able to capture the voices of these characters because I'll say that if no one else has told you, I didn't think you were a creep while I read it. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's something. There's your ballot. That's, yeah. Um, we oh, I'm so torn about which question I want to ask next. Okay, the question I had while you were reading and then while we were just talking is, and I, this is like a big thing in writing, obviously, is that you have to have bad things happen to your characters. That's what makes conflict. That's what makes a story. But was it hard? <laughs> it was. It was really hard. It's kind of funny because my my wife didn't read it. Nobody I, nobody had read it until like my agent read it. Uh, oh. And then after, you know, went through a bunch of editing and things like that. But my wife didn't read it ever. I never really offered it to her or whatever. Um, yeah. So she picked it. I think I was on a trip somewhere at one point and she's like, oh, I read your book while you were gone. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Wait, when it was out? Like when it was already out? Yeah, like oh, I, I don't, can't remember if it was that or if she had the like the advanced published copy, right. you know, before it was like published, published. I think she read it before then. So she must have had the advanced copy when they first sent it to me. Yeah. But either way, it was like, um, well, let's play at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She's like, man, there's a lot of, she's like, I almost couldn't get through it. There's a lot of rough stuff that happened in the middle. And I was like, I know, but, um, you know, the part of what part of writing it, I think that I looking back now, there was a lot of anger that drove parts of the book. You know, certainly the things I've spoken about previously in terms of the way that people view Hawaii and the culture and the misunderstandings most people have about the history of the place. But you know, also I think that the like the deep, the deep inequality of America and the way that people still are unwilling to, to face that and to really ask ourselves hard moral questions about what we're willing to tolerate in a society. And so I, I really pushed people to experience like the nice edge of poverty and how ugly that can be and people that are desperate for a variety of reasons and to have all those things be on the page in a way that, that helps people grapple with them. And hopefully when you get out the other side, and the novel's done, there's a sense of, of, of movement toward, toward bigger and better things. You know, I hope that that's at some level what people get out of it, but to get there, there's certainly a lot of rough stuff in between. So it's hard, it's really hard. There's a lot of stuff in there that I was writing that it's hard to know whether, how much of it you wanna keep in or not, or whether it's, it's going too far in a, in a cynical or unhappy direction. Cause a lot of literature can it's like, be really unhappy sometimes. <laughs> oh <my laughs> if you gosh. read a lot of the most popular books, you'll be like, dang, this is really unhappy. Can't there wow, be more happiness in this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I, you know, that's, I would have liked to have there been a little bit more balance. I tried to find that with the parents at the very least, you know, keeping Malia and Augie together. There's like no, there's yeah. no like, the mm -hmm. kind of things that you hear about a lot when people think about being in a family that's like impoverished or dealing with poverty, right? Where it's like, oh, sure, the dad must be like checked out, right? Oh, he probably left town or whatever, or somebody's an alcoholic or somebody's addicted to drugs and they're abusing their kids. Like that's always what happens in a, like, a, in a family that's like, you know, living in poverty, right? And it's not. And so I really wanted to at the very least render their parents, the parents of the family, like they're you know, they, as, as the novel progresses, they're getting older, they're out of shape, but they like love each other deeply, right? They're like horny. And they're like, they I know, they are. Around, and like, you know, they always found a way to, I think in a lot of situations, be 
be happy even when they're dealing with like really hard things. And so for me, they kind of represented that that sort of resilience, the sort of joyful resilience you can find, I think, among people that are dealing with all kinds of issues, whether they're socioeconomic or, you know, if you're dealing with some sort of recent physical illness or ailment, right? Like if you break your back or something and you're laid up in bed or things like that, you know, a lot of people find ways to deal with those things with a lot of resilience, uh, with a lot of joy, you know, along with oh. the resilience. So I tried to have that be in the, the parents um, to offset the, the tough stuff the other kids go through. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that of as far as them staying together being, you know, that there are these things people often point to and blame for a person's poverty. And so to keep them together and to keep them happy and horny <laughs> really allows you to speak to systemic problems. Like that was so well done because yeah. this family is by society's standards, they're doing everything right. They're just in a, a crappy system that's never going to work for them you know because yeah oh that's so cool yeah and some of it's just circumstantial and they make bad decisions too right like there are well, times yeah. when you're like you see them and you hit you read this some of the decisions as they're making them you're like don't do that and they do it right and so yes i i didn't want to let them off the hook and have them just be sort of victims of circumstance right that certainly puts them in these bad places and they also make bad decisions but it's a combination of those things right and i wanted people to understand you know, when we look at Dean and the things he, the choices he makes and the things that happen to him, it's, it's both, I think, a very, like, naked grappling with capitalism pushed to its extremes, as well as bad decisions, as well as, like, poverty and things like that. But when people ask, when people are trying to figure out why, you know, places that are struggling with, with poverty are also places where you see a lot of drug-related violence or just violence in general, especially between young men and gangs and things like that. It's, it's a result of like an underinvestment in a community and what people turn to as a result of that underinvestment. And one of those things like, <laughs> you, I, don't, I don't know how you could expect somebody to work at a McDonald's when they can make millions more than that um, selling drugs or things like that, right? Like this is a very, you, you tell somebody like, you're in a situation of scarcity. If you want things in this society, you only get them through money and the things that you want, you're gonna to have to pay for. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, but you know what? All of the barriers possible have been put in place to make it impossible for you to get from here to there. Like, how would you not expect somebody to do the most, you know, what would seem the harshest ways possible to make that leap, you know? But there's a variety of reasons and it's really complex. And I wanted to, to render that complexity, but to not, and you know, again, like I said, it was also, from, some of it was from a place of anger. So I think some of that darkness comes up from having to deal with issues that feel intractable and they feel like people don't ever really want to talk about them directly. They talk around them. You know, American society as a whole is a very individualist society. And that's why the book was pushing against the idea of like the big man theory of history and the, just the general individualism that we try to ascribe to things. You know, if you fail, it's because you have a problem as an individual. You made a bad decision. You have a character flaw. That's why you're broke. That's why you're in jail, right? If you succeed, it's because you're smart. You work hard, mm -hmm. you know? And then to the extent that there are all these other circumstances that have been, in many cases, you know, deliberately created, mm -hmm. those don't get talked about directly, especially when people talk about things, you know, like ghettos aren't an accident. They are, they are a specific choice. Ghettos exist because people decided to create them. Right. So a lot of the inequalities exist are the direct result of, of decisions that have been made over time. And I, you know, I just people don't want to face that. People don't want to talk about it. It's so much easier to blame the individual than it is to look at the complex factors that lead people into circumstances in which they make bad decisions or which they have grown up in a state in which their their judgment is not the same sort of judgment another person might have. So those are a lot of the themes I think I was dealing with 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 Dean in particular, but with all the characters. And I think that's where a lot of the the darkest parts of the book come from. Yeah. Well, it's almost like you read the mind of one of our um, audience members because we do have our first Facebook question, which is kind of dealing with this exactly. They wrote, our book club had conflicting feelings about the end. Probably not your first time hearing that, huh? Yeah. Um, do you feel the ending is hopeful or not? I feel like you've answered that pretty well, but I'll let you take it. Yeah, you know, without speaking too specifically to it. I, I see in Cowie's story in particular, I see that there's, there's a lot of indications of redemption and hopefulness. And I would like to think that that's the case with Dean as well. I think that that's kind of on the fence, but I also, again, I think that 
if you look at what he gave up and the decisions he made and what he has ultimately had to provide his family. And again, I'm, I'm looking at this from the position of he, he is figuring out how to give his family what they need. Right. And as much as it's from a place and a type of behavior that I think most of us would find very problematic, I, he wasn't given a lot of other, you know, choices. I mean, he kind of was, he made bad decisions, things like that. But, you know, again, this is the complexity of that. So his character is kind of like, ah, it could go either way. But I certainly think that the very final chapter itself and what we get to see in the final chapter for me represents something bigger than any of them could understand or grapple with. That is ultimately hopeful, certainly for me. But yeah, I think that one of the things that's nice is writing something that's ambiguous enough that people can take it different ways. Uh, certainly something that I, I like. I like that in books when you can finish a book and it's not everything isn't given, you know, everything isn't spelled out for you at the end and you have room to kind of interpret it as you see. So I wrote this in the same style. Yeah, I love that. I think it lets people linger on the themes a little longer too and kind of yeah. piece them out for themselves. And there's quite a few, there's a lot of themes people I'm sure are and hopefully are thinking about after they read this book. We've got another question from a Facebook viewer, and this is, I like this, I like how they phrase this one. Their question is, is Noah the real thing or a manifestation of people's need to believe in a God that will cure all their ills? I know, I, know, like, I love hey. it, I love it. That is that is probably the central question of the book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't, it's, it's up to the reader. And I, I rendered, I tried to render a lot of the things that we see happen with Noah in a way that it leaves that open question, right? What, you know, what is he really capable of versus what are people sort of imagining or placing upon him, right? And where do those things intersect then? And is it important? That's, I think, is probably the bigger question that's asked, right? Does it really matter, right? Is it that, and that's part of the question is like, have, is, the, is the story that this family has begun to tell itself, which in many ways to me felt like a parallel story with the things that America tells itself about America, is that really even the true story? Right. And I think that the different characters grapple with it differently. I think Cowie's answer in particular is very different. It's like absolutely 100% not. <laughs> right. She's yeah. like, no, I reject all of this. I reject every last bit of it. Right. And uh, that could be one answer to it. Right. Noah's answer himself where he was trying to figure it out. And I think that he landed on on something different, you know, but and, and Dean, I don't think Dean had quite figured it out. Dean wasn't ready. Thing wasn't quite ready he was like i don't care like that doesn't of course there's all of the competition between the siblings as well right so dean was always like i want to be the one like i don't want right. it to be no i want to be the one but he's also like and it doesn't matter anyway because what we need more than anything is money like i'm yes. sick of being broke i hate being broke right and so he's like they're okay, all sort of looking want. at different yeah. aspects of it so but yeah i think again i think it's something that's i leave that open to the reader to decide so I won't give you my answer because I don't want you to have my opinion. I want you to have your own opinion. <laughs> I, I respect that. I respect yeah. that. Um, I, I do have a few other pre-submitted questions. You've seen some of these. This is the one I want to go with right now. How did it feel to be lifted up as one of Barack Obama's top books of the year? Uh, oh, and they want to know, did you get any heads up about it or did you just learn like with the rest of us? <laughs> I, I just learned with the rest of everybody else in fact i it my wife was on instagram and that's yeah. how she saw she saw the instagram post and so she like was freaking out and came downstairs and found me and i had no idea that that was the case um so it was cool it's really it's very surreal you know i think that it is it has been a hard few years to have a debut novel come out because it came out in march of 2020 right and so that was right when everything started shutting down. And that was right when everybody was first starting to understand like the true implications of the coronavirus and the pandemic. And I think even then we were all just sort of like, well, it's gonna be like, what, like six to eight weeks, maybe? We're gonna be locked down for like three weeks. And this'll, it's gonna be like a rough couple months and then it's done, right? And yeah. And it wasn't right. And then George Floyd was murdered and that, that those two things just bled together and they just washed away in every, bit of like emotional and, and intellectual energy I had was just completely driven by those things. And so as some of these things started happening, I just didn't have anything left, you know? So I still don't think it's, it's very surreal to have had that happen. And obviously is like an amazing honor, but it also happened in the middle of all these other things that felt so much bigger and more consequential that it just sort of, I don't know, kind of rolled off me. A lot of the stuff that's happened with the book has been very strange to grapple with because it's happened in the midst of so many 
you know, so much. I just think of everything that's happened in the last couple of years. Yeah. It's just nuts, you know, between I mean, like the, the pandemic uh-huh. and the murder of George Floyd and the whole mm-hmm. sort of racial reckoning is ongoing. And then like mm-hmm. the insurrection at the Capitol and like all this oh stuff. My, it's like, it's awesome, like, I know, it's, right? It's bananas to name them all, okay? It's like, it's just, if you submitted you know, this novel, people would be like, well, that can't all happen. Like, exactly. no, exactly. Yeah, people would think you're crazy. If somebody had written what has happened in the last couple of years in the book, they'd be like, nah, listen, we got to dial this back a little bit. This got to yeah, be like, a little more real. No, I think the murder hornets are a little too much. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, it's been a it's been a very strange experience. And I don't know if I've fully processed it. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle, yeah, Barack said it's a great book and that's felt really good. But it also was like, I don't, you know, it just hit at a really weird time in my life. So I don't, it's... Um, I wish that it could have had all could have happened a couple of years ago. So I could have been like super excited and, and felt really, you know, just like overjoyed, but so much of it happened in this gulf of just incredible trauma um, and despair. Uh, yeah. Just unhappiness. So many other yeah. things to deal with. So, so it's probably not the best answer. It's probably not the answer you're looking for. Honestly, <laughs> but it's the no, truth, you know? I think it's a real answer. I think, yeah. you know, I don't know how many events you do for the Minnesota community, but I think we probably hear, I mean, BIPOC communities and then the Minnesota community in that order, maybe hear what you're saying. Yeah. A way that, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. That's a lot. And I can see how the president saying you're one of the best books of the year, maybe didn't even register. Yeah, it did. It just, it's a very numb, it's like a very numb feeling. And it happened late in the year. It was really hard here. And I got kids at home. Like we were locked down. It's like me and my wife and our kids and we're trying to work. We have our kids with us and the hours are long and all, you know, like I go into, I remember the first time I went to the grocery store and was just, I thought I was going to die. I was like, am I going to die? I'm leaving the grocery store. You know, it was just, it was, I had nothing left by the end of the year. So, and it still hasn't come back. I think there's still so much to deal with. So, but you know, it feels nice sometimes. I try to remember, I have it framed. I have like the Instagram post framed. (laughs) I try to look at it and be happy, you know, so. That's Um, cool. I feel like this answer is not the answer most people want to hear. We should probably move on to another question. (laughs) I think it's a real answer. And I think we all, you're not denying something we all have been feeling, although maybe yeah. in a lesser extent. So like, I really appreciate you being honest and vulnerable with us tonight. Like you didn't have to be, so you could have just said like, <laughs> yeah, it was rad, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, it wasn't. So. I have another question um, inspired by that one, I think, which is someone wrote, um, how will your future be? Oh, I guess it's a little different, but um, how will your future writing be impacted by moving to Minneapolis two years ago? Which I don't know whether to focus on that Minneapolis part of the question or the two years ago. Part of the question. Yeah, say. yeah. No, so it actually has been very interesting. So I, I started writing a second novel pretty mm-hmm. quickly after this one went to when it, so writing is funny. Like you finish all of the edits to the book and everybody's like, we are done. This will come out in two years, right? Yeah. So like I finished all the editing everything was done from an artist's perspective. And then there's this huge gulf of time between when you're done and it's like the final edits are in and when it actually hits books, bookshelves and things like that. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll just work on another novel because this thing's not coming out for forever. And like, you know, family and friends are like, when is it coming out? And I'm like, it's coming out in 2020. So find other things to do for the next 16 months. Um, and so I started writing something else and, and I'm still going to work on it, but I started writing it and then in the middle of, of working on it in the middle section, it, part of it set, it's, it kind of spans 200 years, part of it set in like 2016, part of it set 1816, it has to do with like ancient Polynesia and, and I projected a climate change future mm-hmm. into the story and kind of had these two timelines that are, that are weaving together. And in the course of writing that, I became really interested in the story of like, well, what happens between now and 2060 if I'm building out this future? And I tried to make an optimistic future. I'm really sick of like post-apocalyptic novels and the stories people tell themselves about like, we're going to descend into cannibalism. There'll be nothing left on the barren earth and we're going to like slaughter each other. And that's going to be the end of human civilization. And that's what we have to look forward to in like 2080 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But there's so many other, there've been so many post-apocalyptic books, right? And I'm so tired of them because I think that that they miss a really important opportunity to help. Like if we want to imagine, like if we want to build a better world, we have to be able to imagine it. And if we can't imagine it, then how are we going to get there, right? If we don't don't know how we want things to look in the future, if we can't imagine a future in which we think things are going to be good, 
then we're never going to get there because we're going to keep telling ourselves that they're going to be bad and we're just going to end up in this this perpetual cycle. And so I started becoming really interested in that. And I also, you know, moving to the Twin Cities and being here for me, it was also the first place I'd lived that felt so severely segregated. You know, I was kind of insulated from some of that because when I was in when I was on the West Coast, I was with a bunch of my friends from Hawaii. Or like I made a bunch of friends that were from the islands. And so I, I spent all of my time around people from the islands when I was in Oregon. And then when I moved to DC, we lived in primarily black neighborhoods. And I lived, I lived in a place that felt very cosmopolitan and had such a wonderful history. There's a lot of gentrification since that has made it a really awful place. But for a while, like it was Chocolate City. It was one of the few cities where there was like such a strong cosmopolitan black population right and so living there there was still a lot of that present when I was there uh, and when we moved to, to Minneapolis I was like what is with this city I was like it's so segregated it just felt that way to me you know I grew up in a totally different environment and so the novel that I'm writing now is actually set partially in Minneapolis it's set in the in the midwest it's in Minneapolis parts of it are in Milwaukee and it's about like a, a group of, of people of color that are dealing with fallout from a natural disaster mm -hmm. and what they do as a response to build a better community and build better communities in the Twin Cities and other places as a response to this, this uh, natural disaster that happens. And there's a lot of, I don't know, that sounds too straightforward. There's a lot of things that happen. But, but I started working on that and that, that came out as a result of moving here and, and just wanting to imagine like a better Midwest and to talk about the people of color of a variety of, of, you know, immigrant groups and people from a bunch of different places that live here and live in the Midwest and people that moved here as part of the great migration. And those stories are, they're not told as much as they need to be, right? People, I think people think of the Midwest and they think of like, I don't know, like a, a white Minnesota, nice Midwest. And that's like, there is that here, but there are so many other things. There's so many other groups of people that have come here, right? And those stories don't get told enough and we don't imagine enough of a, a Midwest culture that is much more inclusive and expansive than a lot of people think of. So that's one of the things that I'm writing in the novel I'm working on now. Cool. So you're saying I probably have to wait more than two years for that? Oh, yeah, man. sorry, I have a day job and I have a family. So oh man, what am I? If it were I a want... younger version of me, I would have taken the, like the advance and the money I had gotten from my first book and just like lived in a van down by the river and just written. But I, I have like people, I have to, you know, I take care of a family now. So I, I can't be a full-time I was making fun of the publishing industry more than yeah. one of my questions <laughs> that I literally wrote down and I want to get to another audience question. But one of mine was, you're a parent, a husband, I think a software engineer. That's right. <laughs> a climate activist and now a best-selling author. Like, goodbye. Yeah. how do you have the time? I, I'm just bad at most of those things at any given time, right? So I go through periods where I don't get nearly as much writing done as I would like. I, you know, like last night, I was supposed to write this morning. I get up at five every morning and write until my kids wake up at like 6.30. But last night, my daughter got up twice in the middle of the night. And one, at one point, I was taking care of her. And I couldn't get back to sleep after I got her back in bed. And so I slept past my alarm. And so I didn't write today, right? Because I was busy taking care of my, my daughter. And, you know, I do each of those things. I fail equally well at each one of those roles in turn. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, so there's every, and all of them don't go as well as I would like. Um, and I go through periods of burnout where I have to let one thing recede into the background more than the other. Uh, so it's really hard and, and I don't like it, but I think in particular there's, um, I, you know, I've, I've lived, I have lived a very fortunate life. I've lived a very, very fortunate life. And I think that that requires a lot of me. I don't think that it, I don't think that it would be right for me to, to live an entirely selfish life or to focus just on my, my art to the detriment of all the other things that I think are responsibilities that come with having lived as fortunate a life as I have. So, so I try to do as much as I can. I don't, I don't get enough sleep. Probably the one thing that I definitely don't get enough of is sleep. <laughs> Well, I promise hear my kids in the background right now. <laughs> I promise, at least on my behalf and probably the behalf of many of our audience members, even if it takes you another 10 years, we'll wait. <laughs> it won't take that long. It won't take oh, okay, that long. good. I mean, I was crying, <laughs> but like, thank God. Okay. Another audience question, and this might be our last one. So if anyone else out there has questions, now's the time because we're just about there. Um, this is a question about style. Oh, and I think you've answered this one before, but it's a great one for our audience. Do you see Noah's experience with the sharks and his consequent abilities as interjecting magical realism into the story? 
uh, you can call it whatever you want. You know, I think that sometimes people are like, do you, do you get worried when people call it magical realism? I'm like, why? I've read many books that are called magical realism that are fantastic. And, and that's fine. It's just a label, right? People are trying to figure out how to label things and describe them when they're, they don't fit easily into any category. But I think also for me, it, I, it's, it's just a way to express a certain perspective on the world that I, you know, there's, there's a Judeo-Christian perspective on the world, and there are many other perspectives on the world, and those would not talk about some of the things that are in this book as if they were magic. You would just talk about them as the way the world works, right? <laughs> there are plenty of people that believe things about how energy moves through different life forms, whether it's going from an animal to a, to a human or what that means about our relationship between, you know, a human and, and, the, and like the animal, quote unquote, animal world that is is very different than the way that a lot of other people would think about it and which one's real which one's magic i we learn new things about the world every day and so it's there's a lot of room for for things that might feel miraculous to just be the way the world works right and there's plenty of different beliefs that fit into that so magical realism people can call it that and it's great i'm totally happy with that because i love magical realism but that's the the idea of what's magic and what's real is that's partially a social construction so Yes. So would you call it that question, magical <laughs> realism? Like, do you yeah. to... no? Sure. I, yeah, I'm happy, totally happy with that. I, I'm always like, if that's what people want to call it, that's great. And if they don't, and they're just like, I don't see what's magic about this. It's just this, just the way the world works. I would also say yes. <laughs> so. Cool. I love it. I think that's amazing. Well, I think that's about it for questions other than like, I have one last one, which librarian, library, we always ask this, but what are you reading or watching right now, if anything? Yeah, so I've got a, geez, there's a bunch of different stuff I'm reading. I wish I had a couple of the books in front of me. Um, so let me see, there's a book called Humankind that I have from the library right now. It's just not right in front of me. I can't remember the name of the author. It's called Humankind. It came out in, in 2019, 2020. Anyway, this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a deep exploration of basically the question, are humans inherently good? Or are they inherently bad? And this goes back to the same thing I was talking about previously about having some sense of optimism about the future. There's so many stories we tell about the past and ways we interpret history that are completely wrong. Uh, even things like the Lord of the Flies. So there's a section early on in the book where there, the author is talking about Lord of the Flies and when that has happened in real life. And there have literally been children from a school stranded on a, like an island together in the Pacific and they thrived. They lived together what? and survived for, for like a year until they were discovered by this captain. Right. And this idea that humans are like inherently selfish and just evil. And it's like, oh, yeah, once things collapse, people are just going to kill each other because that's what humans do. We all just are selfish and we're going to destroy each other. And time and time again, that has been proven wrong. There's a section that talked about bombing campaigns during World War II and how ineffective they were at breaking people's spirit, both German and in this case, oh. like the British. They just like it didn't work. The more there was the more they were bombed, the more the people in the society like just banded together they used humor there were things where they were like pubs where like the roofs were blown off and they're like well as you can see we're more open than usual come on in and have a drink or whatever right and so there are all these different situations in which the the true history of society and the things that we find out about how humans operate are so different than the, the stories we hear and so humankind is the name of the book um, i've been reading that one a lot i just finished reading a romance novel by jasmine guillory is it the wedding party or something yes. so i just finished that oh i just started emily st john mandel's the glass house i just started that like two days ago cool there's other stuff too but i feel like i was talking for too long <laughs> no, there's always other stuff i mean yeah. like you said like why you know there's somebody who got that, yeah Rutger Rutger bregman sorry i'm probably mispronouncing his name that's the name of the author of, of humankind Cool. I'm going to check that one out for sure. Yeah, you can find it in the library. I can tell you. Hey. One, cop one copy will be checked out because I have it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. Oh my gosh, Kavai. Thank you for spending. It's been an hour, right? Like I have to check because it seemed yeah. like it flew by, but thank you for spending an amazing hour with us. I really appreciate it. Um, it was so wonderful to hear you read from your book, to hear you talk about your book and answer and indulge all of our questions. So thank you so much. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you yeah. for having me. Oh, thank you for being a librarian too. Oh my Super gosh. Fun. Thank you. <laughs> Libraries are the best.
I, I need to like frame that quote now. No, just kidding. Yeah, they're the best. They're the best, uh, the best institution art, the best institution civilization has ever created is a library. It really is. Thank you. That's from me and other librarians. That's very kind to hear at this day and age. So thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you. That wraps up our Washington County Library event with Kwai Strong Washburn. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Maggie O'Farrell. Internationally acclaimed British novelist Maggie O'Farrell is the author behind eight best-selling novels. Her latest, Hamnet, explores the domestic life of William Shakespeare and his wife Anne Hathaway, and how the untimely death of the couple's only son may have inspired one of the Bard's greatest plays. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.